Well, good morning. Um, I have good news for you. Do you like good news? I've got some very good news. News that's changed my life. And perhaps yours. And if it hasn't changed your life, it can this morning. The good news is this. That Jesus Christ has come for people who know their failures. Jesus didn't come for those who think they're a success. He came for people who know they're not. There's a time in my life, actually, it was a span of a number of years when I struggled a lot. And I struggled with feeling that I was unacceptable to God. I knew I I was a failure. I knew I sinned. And I kept sinning. And I thought, God must not love me anymore. I thought His love for me was dependent on me. And then, through a series of events that actually took some time, I came to realize that God's acceptance of me was not dependent on what I had done or what I will do. It was totally, totally, completely dependent on what Jesus had done for me. And when I began to understand that, it was a huge relief. I want to talk about that this morning. Keep that in mind. We've been going through a series, actually it's taken quite some time, called Encountering Jesus. We talk about Jesus a lot here at Westside because he's so, 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 so important. He's a life changer. He's that person who loves to have people come to him and say, I failed and I need help. And so we talk about him a lot, and we've been going through the Gospel of Luke. It's, if you're not familiar with the Bible, it's a book in the Bible that's focused on Jesus explaining his life, his teaching, what he did, and how it ended, and then began again. And so we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, and we've come to chapter 22. 22 is a pivotal chapter in the whole book. Let me give you three reasons. Number one, before chapter 22, we see a lot of Jesus teaching and preaching and healing and reaching out to people and helping them, and confronting religious bigots, and trying to call them to repentance. All of that, we see that chapter after chapter after chapter. You get to chapter 23, he's hanging on a cross, crucified. 
Chapter 22 has to deal with how we get Jesus from the first 21 chapters to chapter 23 on the cross. What happened? Another feature of of this chapter, it all happened in one night. A lot of events took place on this night. It was a big night. And number three, and I hadn't seen this before, but it's very obvious that Satan, evil Satan, is very much at work in people in this night as explained in this chapter. Take a step back and look at the big picture. If you go to the Grand Canyon and you come up against a rock face and it's there and you look at it, you don't see much. When we went to the Grand Canyon and stood on, walked up to the edge, a lot of you probably done the same thing. We had to see the expanse, the big picture first before we began to look at the details. To look at the big picture, it started with God. God created humans, put them on the face of this earth. In order to have fellowship with them, for them to enjoy Him, For him to enjoy them. And that's the way it worked for a little while until Adam and Eve, those first humans, decided to rebel, go their own way. And they did what we call sinned. They sinned against God and that fellowship that wonderful fellowship between God and them was marred. And there were some big changes. And at that point, God didn't just destroy them. He could have. He embarked on a great rescue operation to rescue them from the situation of sin that they were in in order to restore that wonderful fellowship. And his rescue plan would involve actually something very dramatic. Sending his son, God the Son, to this earth to take on a human body, being God in a human body, and then to do something even more dramatic, something I can't really understand why he would do this, to actually send him to that cross, chapter 23, to be crucified and to become the sin-bearer, taking our sin upon himself and actually dumping on his own son terrible, terrible wrath that we deserved, but poured it out on his son instead. 
Satan didn't like that plan. Satan rebelled against God, used to be an angel, rebelled against God, went his own way, God kicked him out of heaven. But from that point on, Satan was focused on opposing God, the plan of God, and the people of God who would choose to follow him. Here in chapter 22, Satan is so active because I think he knows this is his last chance to bring down God's plan. So let's look at it. Chapter 22. It starts out in verse 2 with the Jewish religious leaders says the chief priests and the scribes, seeking how to put him, that is Jesus, to death. They had had enough of him. He was interfering with their plans. They wanted to get rid of him. But they had a problem because many of the people loved Jesus. And they knew that they had to be kind of careful in how they did away with him. And so... They figured they need an inside job. And so they actually made contact with one of Jesus' disciples, who was actually a fake. He professed to be a follower of Jesus, but he really wasn't in his heart. His name was Judas Iscariot. Verse 3 of chapter 22. And these religious leaders made a deal with Judas. Hey, we'll give you some money, but we've got a job for you. We need to have you hand Jesus over to us at the right time and place, which would be this night in the garden, the very garden Jesus had prayed. And we talked about that last week. It says... And this is awful, but it happened. Verse 3, Satan entered into Judas Iscariot. He was wide open for the work of Satan in his life because he had rejected Jesus. And so here in this garden, it happens. And I'm going to read from verse 47. If you have a Bible, a paper copy, digital copy, they all work. But look and follow along so you see this for yourself. Verse 47, while he, that is Jesus, was still speaking to the disciples, and actually he said to them, pray that you don't enter into temptation because it was coming. And he's warning them it's coming and they need to be ready for it. And they needed to pray that they would not fall for it. While he was speaking, there came a crowd. We hear, read a few verses later, the crowd was made up of these religious leaders, the temple police. And they came and 
with them was a man called Judas, one of the twelve was leading them. He, that is Judas, drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Let me explain a few things about kissing and about this term, Son of Man. By the way, the name Son of Man was the name Jesus used of himself most often. Probably 80 times he would refer to himself as the Son of Man. It has the idea of him being human. He was the son of a human being who had come to this earth, God in flesh. But a lot more than that. It's actually from one of the prophets in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, chapter 7. And here in this chapter 7, Daniel has this vision of something that's going to happen in the future. And the vision involves four ferocious animals representing four ferocious and evil kingdoms. And Daniel sees these, and it's kind of scary. But then it says this, beginning with verse 13, I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came with the ancient of days, who is God, and was presented before him. And to him, that is this one like the son of man, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This one, like the Son of Man, it has the idea that he looked really, really human, unimpressive, but there was a lot more to this person than humanity. There was deity who would have someone who would have dominion, who would rule over everyone, everything. And then you see every person, people's nations, people from different languages all bowing down in submission and worship to Jesus. Jesus because Jesus fulfilled this. He is the Son of Man being talked about in Daniel 7. And when Judas comes up to Jesus to kiss him, which is basically identifying the person they need to arrest, Jesus looks at Judas in the eye and says, are you going to do this to me? 
who will have dominion over you and you will eventually submit to me. And Judas would eventually bow the knee to Jesus, not because he wanted to, but by force. What about this kiss? Got to explain this a little bit. There's a custom in the Middle East where good friends, when they greet each other, we, what do we do? We shake hands. We sometimes hug. Um, in the Middle East today, we used to live in the Middle East, and we did this. I was always really uncomfortable with it. <laughs> but when friends, good friends, would see each other, men with men, by the way, women with women, They would kiss each other on each cheek. And this was the custom. And Judas was going to do this to pick out Jesus. It was dark, hard to see. The mob needed to arrest the right person so Jesus would identify, or Judas would identify Jesus with this kiss. Judas responded to the temptation of Satan by handing Jesus over to the mob. Incidentally, twice that night, Jesus warned his disciples that Satan was going to tempt them. He did that in the middle of his prayer or before and after. Pray that you don't enter into temptation because it was coming. He did it once before this in verses 31 to 34 when he looks at the disciples, he addresses all of them, and he says, Satan is going to, quote, sift you like wheat tonight, separating those of you whose hearts are genuinely following me from those who are just faking it. And then he turns to Peter, who was the leader of the gang, and he says, to Peter and warns him that that very night Peter is going to deny him, turn his back on Jesus. And Peter is all courageous. He was that kind of guy. I think he'd be doing jujitsu if they had it back then. But, um, he says, no, not me. I'm even willing to go to prison. I'm willing to die with you. I would never turn my back on you. 
This is going to come up later. And so the group comes to arrest Jesus, and the first temptation to the disciples comes. You know what it is? They try to stop Jesus from being arrested. They didn't understand that the plan of God involved Jesus going to the cross, being crucified, taking the sin of humanity upon himself, and then rising from then. They didn't understand that. And they tried to stop it. They tried to fight. One of them says, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And then one of them, and by the way, the Gospel of John identifies who this one is. I think Luke doesn't. He's trying to protect this guy's reputation. The guy was Peter. And Peter takes his sword, and I think he was not really good at using it. He was probably trying to kill the servant of the high priest. And hit a glancing blow and cuts the guy's ear off. What does Jesus do? He says, no, stop. Put your swords away. This isn't the time. He was surrendered to the plan of his father to go to the cross and nothing could stop him. And then he does an amazing thing. What do you do when someone mistreats you? You get angry. You maybe want to get revenge. You want to call them out on what they've done. Jesus didn't do any of that. He showed one more act of compassion by healing one more person, and he touches the ear, and it's instantly healed. At his moment of greatest need, he shows compassion for someone else. That's the way he is. And then he asked the officers of the temple, this is down in verse 52, have you come out against me a robber with swords and clubs. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me. But this is your hour. I think what he meant was, this is the time you just do your thing. But then he adds, and the power of darkness. Referring to the fact that there was great satanic Activity going on during this night. And then beginning with verse 54, the second temptation comes to the disciples, specifically to this courageous guy, jujitsu guy, Peter. Let me just read from verse 54. It says, They seized him, led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. 
And Peter was following at a distance. Not too close because he was a little afraid. But he followed at a distance to see what would happen. And it says, when they had kindled a fire, it's night, probably chilly, in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him said, this man was also with him. I saw this guy hanging out with Jesus. But he, that is Peter, denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. Denial number one. A little later, verse 58, someone else saw him and said, You are also one of them. Peter said, Man, I'm not. Denial number two. Verse 59, after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. He had that particular Galilean accent. Jesus did. And again, verse 60, Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. Denial number three. And it says, immediately, while he was still speaking, kind of in the middle of his sentence, what happened? The rooster crowed. Jesus had predicted that. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. He knew. Peter denied that, but it happened. I don't know a lot about roosters, but I've heard them enough to be irritated by them and to know they crow a lot. I don't know what happened here. Maybe a question I can ask Jesus. I kind of think he kept this particular rooster quiet until the very moment when the third denial came and the rooster crowed. Then verse 61, penetrating verse. As the rooster was crowing, says the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Caught his eye. I don't think it was a look of anger, knowing Jesus. I think it was probably a look of great sadness, disappointment, and love. And it says, at that point, Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And then verse 62, 
Peter messed up. He failed. He should have been the strong one, the courageous one. But he wimped out. And failed the very person who had poured his life into him for three years. Peter's immediately convicted of his sin. The sin of lying. (laughs) The sin of denying Jesus. The sin of responding to this situation with fear when he should have been courageous. And he does the right thing. It says he went out and wept bitterly. It wasn't just a few tears. It was probably heaving sobs, knowing the terrible thing he had just done, how he had failed, how he had sinned. And he had been proud and self-sufficient before, but now he is humble and broken, which is the first thing you do, need to do, when you're convicted of a particular sin. And he breaks and he repents. It's interesting to me that even though Peter had wronged Jesus so much, Jesus never brings it up again. If it was me, I'd probably say, "Mm, remember that time I needed you the most and you weren't there. In fact, you denied me. And you wronged me then. Jesus does not do that. Just the opposite. Check out John chapter 21 this afternoon. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible. This is after Christ is crucified and He's risen from the dead, which is God's seal of approval on what He has done. And the disciples, I think, were pretty discouraged. Didn't have it together. And Peter says, hey, let's go back to fishing. And the others say, yep, let's do it. We'll go with you. And they fish all night and catch zero fish. It had happened once before. And they see this guy on the shore, and the guy says, do you have any fish? And they say, no. And he says, throw the nets on the other side of the boat, and there'll be a catch of fish. And was there ever a catch? So many fish, they could hardly drag the net ashore. And then I I love this part. 
they get to shore, recognizing that person was Jesus. They get to shore, and Jesus has breakfast ready for them on a charcoal fire. They didn't always use charcoal in those days. It was more expensive. He used the best. And he had bread and fish all ready for them. And then Jesus, after breakfast, takes Peter aside. Not to ball him out, rebuke him, just to love on him. That's the way Jesus is. To love on him and basically ask him a question in three different ways. Do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I do. You see, his heart was truly after Jesus. Loved Jesus. Even though he had failed. And then Jesus tells him to get back on mission. Back there in verses 31 to 34, Jesus says, you're going to deny me, but when you have turned back, strengthen my brothers. And then here in John chapter 21, he says, um, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Focus not on yourself, but on other people. And the very things I've been doing for you as an act of love, you do to them as an act of love, which involves taking this wonderful message of the gospel to people who need it so very much. People who know their failures, who need Jesus desperately like some of you do. If you feel like you're a failure, you need Jesus. I'm going to share with you some things that I have learned is I've learned that the gospel is good news, the gospel of Jesus. I want to talk about four radical truths about the gospel that have impacted me and they continue to impact me. I'm not there yet, still learning. And I share them with you, and then I'm going to ask you at the end to not just take this as information, but to personalize them. Like I have personalized them and continue to do so. The first thing is this, a truth that has deeply impacted my life. God can't love me more or less than he already does. How do you improve on infinite? You can't. Christ's love is infinite. He can't love me more, and no matter what I do, he can't love me less. That's an amazing thing. His love is not dependent on 
our returning love. He just loves us. And that's why he's so intent on people responding to his rescue plan. Jesus loved on Peter. And Peter responded to that by saying, yes, Lord, I love you. And then the second radical truth that has helped me is this. I can be completely honest with him about my sin. You know what has helped me to do that? Realizing he already knows. I don't need to hide because I can't. He knows what a bad person I can be. He knows the things that I've done. And it's a wonderful thing just to be able to be honest and open and transparent with God. He wants that. If you're hiding your sin in any way, I've got bad news for you. It doesn't work. You can't. Confess like Peter did. Mourn over it like Peter did. And then the third truth. I can't improve or take away from what Christ did on the cross. Jesus Christ took all of my wretchedness, all of my past, all the mistakes I've done, mistakes, sin that I'm even committing now or will do in the future. He took the full weight of that upon himself and allowed his Father's wrath to dump all over him so that he took the punishment that I deserved. And I can't and don't need to undo that. My mess-ups... Don't want to excuse them. They're awful in the sight of God, but my mess-ups were nailed to the cross at the same time. And we can't take away from that. The last words Jesus said before He intentionally died was, It is finished. Not that my suffering is over. What a relief. No. What I have done in taking the burden of sin upon myself, it's done. does not have to be repeated. You don't have to go back to church after you've messed up the kind of redo things. It's done. And then the fourth thing. Christ transforms me as I get to know Him and fall in love with Him. We've talked about a definition of a disciple. A disciple is one who is following Jesus. A disciple is one who is embracing the mission of Jesus. But then the second one in our list says this, a disciple is one who is being transformed by Jesus. 
We cooperate. We need to cooperate with His work. But the power is Him from Him. I'd love to study more of the life of Peter. His life was radically transformed. He went from this fearful, doubting, denying guy to someone who is very courageous. And you know what did it? Understanding that Christ's death was in God's plan and then seeing Jesus living, alive, the resurrection, radically changed his life. And in his very first sermon, Acts chapter 3, he talks about this. Boldly, his life was radically transformed and our lives can be transformed by Jesus too. When you walk out the door, or even before you do, I would ask you to personalize these four truths. If you haven't written them down, go to the website this evening. It'll be up there and write them down and make them very, very personal. Have you done that? Is Jesus and his death some sort of distant concept or is it something that you say was for me? Personalizing it. But make these truths personal. Like I have done. Thank you, God, you can't love me more than you do or less. Lord, I thank You that I can be totally honest and transparent about my sins and failings with You. Thank You that what Jesus did when He died on the cross was completed. And it doesn't have to be redone. And it was for me. And then... Thank you that you can transform my character. And ask him to do that. He's good at that. Did it with Peter. He's done it in varying degrees in us, and he can do it again. Would you personalize that? Spend some time thinking it over today, the coming days. Let me pray for us. Lord, you are so amazing. You could have been a very isolated God, but you wanted to come close to us. But God, we know that our sin and rebellion has shut down the experience of fellowship in many of our lives. And Lord, I thank you that there's a way and a time to come back. Thank you, Lord, that there is no sin that is unforgivable. And we can come to you, lay it all out, and on the basis of what Jesus has done, not only experience forgiveness, but that restored relationship 
and that character building that we all desperately need. I pray if there's some who have never personally trusted Jesus and what He has done, that they would do that now. And the rest of us, Lord, You would do a deep work in our lives this week. We just pray in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. You're dismissed. Would you follow through on that personalization? Have a good week.